Has the COVID crisis in India been exaggerated? What is behind the Indian people's distrust of vaccinations? Why have masses of farmers risen up in objection to the government's new reforms? Are there links between the farmers' resistance against the government and the history of resistance against British colonial rule? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we dedicate the entire program to the situation in India as it now rocks global media with tragic and arguably misleading headlines. In our first half hour, we hear from author Joe Nash of the group Left Lockdown Skeptics about other factors that need to be taken into context. Then in our second half hour, we have an interview with Delhi-based independent journalist Vandana Kay speaking to Chris Cook of Guerrilla Radio about the huge farmer protests and their determined decision to stick it out, COVID or no COVID, despite the costs. On this week's program, the Indian Lotus unfolds, resisting vaccines and corporate capture of farms. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 14, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. It was the Obama administration that convened a years-long grand jury to try to prosecute Assange. It was Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California, who urged Assange's prosecution under the Espionage Act years before Trump was in office. And it was Blinken's colleague on the Obama national security team, Hillary Clinton, who praised the DOJ for its prosecution of Assange. All of this was intended as punishment for Assange's revelations of rampant wrongdoing by the U.S. government and its allies and adversary governments around the world. How can you run around the world feigning anger over other countries, persecution of independent journalists, when you are a key part of the administration that is doing more than anyone to destroy one of the most consequential independent journalists of the last several decades. That comes from the article, Anthony Blinken continues to lecture the world on values his administration aggressively violates by Glenn Greenwald, posted May 11th, originally published on the Glenn Greenwald website. The current crop of COVID-19 vaccines have not been adequately tested have not concluded phase three trials, and are not safe. And we're not talking about the short-term effects here either. As tragic as the recent fatalities and injuries may be, they pale in comparison to the mountain of carnage we could see in the near future when vaccine victims discover that their 
immunocompromised immune systems are no longer capable of fighting off new infections or wild strains of the virus. The same phenomenon emerged years ago in animal trials in which ferrets were injected with an experimental serum that helped them develop a, quote, durable antibody response, unquote, to infection. Unfortunately, when the ferrets were exposed to the wild virus sometime later, they all died. That comes from the article, The COVAX-19 Scorecard, Bleeding, Blood Clots, and the Whole Nine Yards, by Mike Whitney, posted May 11th, originally published at the UNS Review. Had the FDA and Anthony Fauci's National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Disease, or NIAID, started approving existing clinically proven and inexpensive drugs for treating malaria, parasites, and other pathogens at the start of the pandemic, millions of people would have been saved from experiencing serious infections or dying from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Why federal health officials never follow this strategy is a question the mainstream media refuses to ask. Another question that the medical establishment, let alone our compliant media, is why have they failed to ask whether there are reliable studies in the peer-reviewed literature and testimonies from thousands of day-to-day clinical physicians worldwide who treat COVID-19 patients with these drugs, in particular hydroxychloroquine, or HCQ, and ivermectin. In most nations, there has been enormous success in treating COVID patients at the early and moderate stages of infection. However, in the U.S., Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, the FDA, and our institutional medical leaders have categorically denied their use. That comes from the article, Why Are Hydroxychloroquine and Ivermectin Being Officially Suppressed? by Dr. Gary Null and Richard Gale, posted May 11th. Small and medium-sized capital are slated to be eliminated. Big capital prevails. A massive concentration of corporate wealth is ongoing. It's a diabolical new world order in the making. Red zones, the face mask, social distancing, the closing down of schools, colleges, and universities, no more family gatherings, no birthday celebrations, music, the arts, no more cultural events, sport events are suspended, no more funerals, no more weddings. Love and life is banned outright. That comes from the article under the headline, Video, the 2021 Worldwide Corona Crisis, the Worst Crisis in Modern History, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky and Ariel Nayola Rodriguez, posted May 11th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Headlines out of India in recent weeks have been circulating intensely, declaring a major humanitarian crisis as the COVID crisis is wreaking havoc. 
Currently, the death toll stands at 250,000 due to the virus. Lacking beds, drugs and oxygen, many hospitals have been forced to drive away ill people. In its latest report, the WHO has stated the country houses half of COVID cases and 30% of deaths by COVID. 2.5% of the state have been vaccinated and leaders stated bluntly that vaccines are needed here and now. However, an alternative perspective finds that the situation in India is not as dire as popularly reported. The article is entitled, India's Current COVID Crisis in Context. The author is Joe Nash, an independent researcher, writer, and editor, and situated in Dysart in Fife, Scotland. I got more details in a recent interview. You've got a lot of interest in India. Am I, am I, is that true, or are you... Or you want to talk about that just a bit? Yes, well, um, I first went to India in 2005 because uh, I was training in mindfulness-based therapies. Uh, You know, the big boom in mindfulness that happened in the um, early 21st century or in the States, I think it was earlier. And um, I actually originally went to India to study Buddhism, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy. And then uh, I took six months sabbatical from my academic job to go and do some research there. Um, And I just kind of fell in love with the place and the people. I learned the language to the best of my ability, still not fluent after all these years. Um, And uh, yeah, then I returned to the UK around the time of the financial crash and they were looking for voluntary redundancies. So I volunteered and I made a deal with the university. I could continue to work with my master's students and my PhD students online and um, pop to and from India and the UK a couple of times a year. And so I went to live there to study with uh, Buddhist masters and to improve my understanding of the effect of meditation on mental health. Um, So I was there for three years before I was invited to go and lecture on those same topics in Sri Lanka. Uh, After my contract in Sri Lanka ended, I returned to India to deepen my studies. And um, I worked, I then began began working as a freelance uh, research editor, mostly with people in Asia. Um, So I was there until... I went to Sri Lanka in 2011 and returned to India in 2015, 16, around then. And I was there until the end of 2019. Um, and then uh, during that time, I went. I was invited to Mexico to do some research with my ex-PhD student who studied with me in Sheffield, who is Mexican. Uh, and while I was in Mexico, we went into lockdown. Um, I kept in touch with people in India because I was trying to get back, but it hasn't been possible. Um, However, obviously, you know, I have a lot of um, intimate ties there. Uh, I did actually um, get very closely involved with some kids that needed looking after for a while when I was living there. And one of them is now uh, a young man in his early 20s who's running the food bank there. And I do the fundraising and Uh, some of the, you know, consciousness raising activities around that on social media and phone calls and emails and so on. Uh, And uh, he does the hard work on the ground and coordinates a team of volunteers there. 
So that's my, that that sort of sums up my continuing the beginning to the end of my influence or ongoing ongoing uh, interest in India. Could you talk about your recent article India's current covid crisis in context? I mean, you you've written a number of things. You first of all point out the uh, the huge numbers that uh, I mean one thing that they they neglect to mention is that uh, the 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 population is huge it's like 1.3 billion people which is like 100 times the population of ontario so if you take you know the the numbers in ontario of deaths and multiply it by 100 you find almost exactly the same amount um i want to talk about one uh fact in particular the the air pollution situation i mean uh, you know is there a, a season where it's more intense than others or a time of day uh, you know, how, how, how long is the, uh, has the stress from pollution-related disorders changed before and after COVID? Well, it's, it's difficult to talk about India in national terms in many ways because it's such a vast territory and um, it crosses like six different climate zones. So when we're talking about India, it sort of helps to kind of focus on different areas or compare different areas of India, really. Um, so, I mean, the images that were in my article were of the um, air quality in Delhi. So pollution is pretty severe across different parts of India, but it depends on the region, the climate, and whether we're talking about urban or rural areas. But the COVID outbreaks that have been widely reported on the media have tended to cluster in urban areas, especially the mega cities of Mumbai, New Delhi, Kolkata, Bengaluru and Chennai. So therefore, it makes sense to look at the problem of air pollution um, and in its impact on respiratory health in those areas. Uh, Delhi in particular was the um, source of the images in the media of people gasping for air in need of oxygen on trolleys outside hospitals. Sadly, that is a fairly regular occurrence in Delhi. It's world famous for having the most toxic air in the world at different points of the year. Um, most, most of the uh, very severe uh, air pollution occurs around uh, the pre-monsoon season, which is now April, May, before the rains come. And then again, uh, November, December, uh, during the um, harvest uh, season, when the farmers in the Punjab and Hari Haryana have a practice of burning the stubble, crop stubble, which creates an awful lot of smoke and uh, kind of gathers around Delhi in a kind of thick smog. But I mean, the rest of the time, Delhi has a lot of problems due to traffic fumes um, and the burning of um, fossil fuels. Um, for cooking and uh, heating and to power uh, uh, electricity plants. So um, the, the, I think it was November 2019, the city was shut down for several days because the air became so noxious that a public health emergency was declared. Schools were closed and uh, in the city and in the surrounding suburbs for several days. All the industries powered by coal and diesel were also ordered to close by the Environment Pollution Prevention and Control Authority. And it was during this time that uh, the oxygen bars that I wrote about in my article started to spring yeah. up. 
Yeah, you said there's an already an industry for oxygen, which I, I'm not familiar with anything like that in my neck of the woods, about like a private market for oxygen for 15 minutes and you pay for it, right? Yeah, so, yeah I mean, they're, this- like, they're like cocktail bars, yeah. okay? So you go in, you sit down, and then you can have your oxygen mixed with an essential oil of some kind yeah. <laughs> uh, to give it a nice flavor and the essential oil also has an impact on the brain or whatever. This is how it's so sold. Is this competing with the need for oxygen? Because we were hearing about it that, well, I don't have enough oxygen. We don't have enough oxygen for the masses of people. I mean, do you have this competing with the need for oxygen in the hospitals? Uh, No, I think that um, I was listening to um, a report by Johan Tengra yesterday, who's an activist in Mumbai, and he's been researching in, in all these related areas for the last five years. And I've also read a lot in the Indian media about this ongoing oxygen shortage India-wide. Primarily, it seems caused by um, India choosing to export oxygen from around two years ago, um, causing shortages at different times of the year when there's a high demand, which would be around now and then again in the north anyway, around November, December time, particularly in Delhi. Mm. Um, A recent study showed that India's toxic air caused by particulate matter, you know, the dust from the road and construction and household air pollution, claimed 1.24 million lives in 2017. That's a study that I found in The Lancet. That's 12.5% of all the deaths recorded that year in India. So... Um, yeah, so this is this is something that this is why I chose to write the article and call it the COVID crisis in context because there are so many different. It's not I'm not denying that there's a COVID crisis. There is, but um, and I know of that from speaking to people in different parts of India. There's definitely a, a big crisis in Maharashtra, for example, which is the state uh, of Mum- where Mumbai is located. Um, but. Uh, you know, in the wider context of all these other issues um, that affect directly affect respiratory health and uh, people's need for oxygen at different times of the year, I felt that it was necessary to get these things in a bit more balance. It was being used as kind of uh, to, uh, um, like we call it fear porn. It's, um, you know, constant, this constant plugging of uh, tragic, catastrophic, covid stories on british media and it and it swung away from ourselves and to india Mm. and it was during a time when there was increasing resistance to the mass vaccination program Mm. um and it was the the story was couched in terms of you know if if people don't get vaccinated if people don't take up this opportunity that these people in india are crying out for we could end up like this yeah. And I thought, well, actually, it's really not that simple, you know, and I was aware when I was talking to people that they were becoming quite afraid um, and, and feeling highly pressured into going down the vaccination route that when they weren't 100 percent sure that was right for them. So I thought, well, I have to counter that and actually put it in, put it into some context. I felt a kind of responsibility to do that, really. Well, okay, you, you say that the government's focus on vaccine procurement 
diverts resources from tackling urgent public health issues, including uh, access to clean water, sanitation, clean air, and, and treatments for other communicable diseases. Could you paint a picture for our listeners? What, what is an example of someone in distress uh, who's been sick or died that the COVID vaccinations may have played a role? Well, I think it's difficult. It's difficult because I'm not there to talk about any individual cases on the ground that particularly fit that description. I can only talk about trends, um, really, that I've read about in the media. And when I've spoken to people on the ground, I get very different stories, for, depending on the part of India that the person's living in about actually what's happening with the COVID situation, what's happening with other health resources. You see, so, I mean, it's just I merely made the point in my article, which I think is fairly common sense, really, that, you know, the, the health, uh, the health system, the government funded health system in India, which is different from the private health system. But the government funded health system in India is fragile at best. Um, and so if the government are then diverting resources away from uh, an incredible struggling health service, to uh, procure these COVID vaccines, then obviously they are taking, they are di having to divert funds from other services. I mean, I read a report about um, TV vaccination programs being delayed for children um, and TV deaths are beginning to rise as a consequence. I mean, TB kills 450,000 people a year. It's, it's, I think the latest figure that I read is as an estimate of 520,000 in the previous tw tw 12 months as a result of uh, BCG vaccinations not being given during childhood. So this is just one example. But when it comes down to individuals, because I'm not there on the ground and I get very different reports from very different parts of India. I can't say I, I know of a particular case, a particular individual who needed something, and yet that money was spent on a COVID vaccine. I can't, I can't offer that kind of an example. Could you talk about the Indian working class, uh, you, you say that they're more hesitant about taking the vaccine than you know, we are in, in the West. Uh, is this traceable to an incident or incidents in the past? Mm, that's a very interesting question. I think, yes, um, the v vaccine hesitation in India uh, varies depending on the region. So, um, my main contacts live in the north, in the northern Gangetic Plains, um, and uptake there has been very low, um, and there's been an awful lot of reports of adverse reactions and even deaths shortly after vaccination. These are also uh, reported in uh, on social media with links to local media newspapers, mostly in Hindi, which I can read. So I've collected various stories of people dying shortly after the vaccine uh, and having very severe adverse reactions. I also, I've also heard a lot of anecdotal reports from people that I know well there who I would trust with my life. I don't think they're pulling my leg, you know. Um, and uh, the concerns um, that they have about the vaccinations really are uh, the kinds of reports that they've heard coming out of the EU and um, about you know the AstraZeneca, they have two. They have two vaccines on offer there, the AstraZeneca and Covax, 
and the, Ast the AstraZeneca vaccine, of course, has got very bad reports worldwide and has been banned in many European countries uh, due to the blood clot issues. Um, and the Covovax has also uh, ties, both companies that producing these vaccines have ties to another company, which uh, was funded, all, all three funded by the Gates Foundation, or the research into the vaccines has been funded by the Gates Foundation. And the other company that the, India has a particularly uh, bad history with um, was uh, f the company offering the Gardasil um, vaccination, the HPV vaccination project. In 2009, in Andhra Pradesh and Gujarat, they launched a major research project for vaccine against the human papillomavirus, which is known to cause uh, cervical cancer in some vulnerable women. Um, and many, I think it's 24,000 girls aged between 10 and 14 were vaccinated. Um, and the vaccines were provided by GlaxoSmithKline and Merck. Um, and the project was designed and executed by the Program for Appropriate Technology in Health, funded by Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, but the government of India suspended the program in 2010 due to ethical violations um, widely reported by human rights organizations. Um, however, by that time, 24,000 girls had been vaccinated and seven had died during the trial. And there was a lot of concern about the fact that many of these girls were from the Dalit and tribal communities. So uh, scheduled castes and tribes, or they call SCTs in India, um, and had been told that they were being given an injection to improve their health. Um, so that's a widespread story still in the collective memory. Um, and the introduction of that study to India was made on the basis that it was going to be a great investment in the health in the health of India and the health of India's young women. But in fact, later on, um, you know, during the investigation around these um, alleged ethical violations, um, the costs involved, the profits that would have been made had the study passed through the trials would, would have been enormous. I mean, and this is something that Indian people are very aware of. The size of their population means that if you can get a, ma a mass vaccination program going there, if you can compel people to accept the vaccine, this involves billions and billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars for the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and down in the south, the hesitancy is especially high in Tamil Nadu, which is where I was just before I left India. And um, there was a very high profile case of uh, this actor called, a Tamil actor called Vivek. Uh, and um, he was employed by the government to promote um, the vaccines. He was a kind of vaccine ambassador. And the day after he took his first shot, he died of a heart attack. So this is also an incident because he is a kind of comic actor and well-loved, popular kind of media figure um, who died within 24 hours of his first shot. Of course, this has had an impact on people's um, trust in the vaccines.
Yeah, uh, maybe I'll ask me one more question if I could. Uh, I'm talking about ivermectin and, and hydrochloroquine. I mean, they're they're written up in the medical journal literature robustly, uh, you know, as, as as treatments. But in the global north, I'm sorry, the only cure essentially is vaccine. But but what about in India? I mean, are there therapies, uh, these sorts of therapies, act used as treatments uh, as a part of the medicine? Mm. Well, as far as I know, and from what I know from people living there, they were they were being offered ivermectin for uh, ivermectin, sorry, for um, the respiratory virus sy- symptoms around the last season, but this was pulled. Um, this frontline treatment was pulled in January, I think. I can't swear to that. I'd have to check. Um, but I know that it's just yesterday been announced in the national press in India that Goa, the state of Goa, which I know very well, I've been there many times, has uh, reintroduced this as a frontline prophylaxis treatment for free. So basically, you can take your Adar card, you know, your Indian identity card to any pharmacy, any chemist shop, any drugstore, and you can get a free prophylaxis a prophylactic treatment um, of ivermectin. I think it takes five days and everybody's being encouraged to take this treatment um, in order to avoid uh, a severe COVID infection. So it's being taken up again in Goa. I'm not sure what's happening in the other states. Uh, It seems to me that it's uh, 100% necessary. Um, But I think, you know, the emphasis is on vaccination. Well, Joe, uh, it's really been a treat having you on the show and, and giving us a, a little bit, um, an interesting insight into what's going on on the ground. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be my guest on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. We've been speaking to Joe Nash. Her uh, article, India's Current COVID Crisis in Context, can be found at the site, website leftlockdownskeptics.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In India, farmers rose up in reaction to the passage by the Parliament of India in September of last year of three laws which they say would make it effortless to sell products to big buyers. However, the farmers claim this would leave them at the mercy of corporates. They demand the rejection of the acts without any conditions. They also demand a minimum support price, which would demand the government purchase farm produce directly from farmers and ensure a minimum profit for the harvest. On November 26, 2020, a nationwide general strike claimed at 250 million people took place in support of the farmers. The protests are ongoing, and as of March, 40,000 protesters are sitting at Singu and Tikri at the Delhi border. The government is not willing to back down either, and the protests have been besieged by violent attacks and media disinformation. To try to get as much information as possible, Chris Cook from CFUV's Guerrilla Radio got hold of Delhi-based Vandana Kay. She is an independent journalist and producer who writes on the intersections of 
environment, gender, youth, and indigenous communities with a focus on climate change. She's also covered India's agriculture beat for nearly two years. Vandana's articles can be found at Deutsche Welle, Resurgence and Ecologist, The Wire, and Canada's Media Co-op, where her recent piece, The Fight Over Agriculture in India and How Punjabis in Canada Are Supporting Farmers, appears. Welcome to the program, Vandana. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my great pleasure, of course. We don't get a lot of reports from India here in Canada. The last one I saw, uh, the weather looked terrible. There was uh, thunderstorms and and lightning. How about conditions um, for the people sitting in the vigil? They've been there. There's a lot of people. They've been there for a long time. How how about their basic necessities? How are they meeting those needs? Well, uh, there are three protest sites in Delhi, at the borders of Delhi, actually. And at these three sites, uh, thousands of farmers have amassed to protest against three laws that were passed in the Indian parliament last year. And uh, they did not plan to sort of come and stay here for so long. So it all kind of happened spontaneously. So they came in their tractors and there's a uh, there's a trolley attached to the back of each tractor and that is how they live basically they sleep in the trolleys uh, there's no drinking water at the protest sites uh, there's no toilets basically it's a stretch of a highway and all you have is shops on both sides so if there are thousands of people at these sites to provide them drinking water water for bathing water for laundry uh, adequate toilet facilities, all that is missing. And the government has tried to provide that uh, by uh, sending tankers of water and installing temporary toilets. However, that is insufficient for such a large crowd. Well, I've, I've read accounts of electricity and internet access being cut off and water being limited as well. This seems to contradict what you're saying, that the government is supplying necessities uh, which uh, which account is to be believed or are both true? So, uh, see, uh, this is from uh, basically visiting the site two to three times, uh, not just one site, but more than one site, that's what I have seen. Uh, so uh, when the government, uh, when the protests began, from the very beginning, these were the complaints, water and toilets. So uh, the government, the Delhi government I'm talking about, which is a state government and not the central government, which right now is basically, the center is governed by the ruling party, Bhartiya Janta Party. So the Delhi government sent in these water tankers, the toilets were also installed, but if you have, you know, a dozen toilets, that doesn't really make a huge difference. And uh, in terms of internet, the internet was cut off for quite a few days at these sites and in the neighboring areas which caused quite a lot of inconvenience. However, last evening at the Singhu border, the internet was restored. How many, how many people are there roughly uh, between the three main campsites? Do you have a rough estimate of how many people are taking part? So in the beginning, people tried to count and then they simply gave up because the numbers are constantly varying. There's no system through which you know, farmers sign in or there's no one particular point where they enter their data. So 
when you speak to the farmers at these protest sites, they'll say, oh, we are 100,000, more than 100,000. But uh, estimates say they could be in tens of thousands. But there is no official count. And you mentioned that uh, the three laws that uh, have been enacted by the Modi government, the federal government, can you describe to me uh, what those laws are and why the farmers are so upset? There are three laws, uh, and the first law has to do with how crops are sold and uh, produced in India. So there is something called APMC in India, Agricultural Produce uh, Marketing Committee, uh, which is also in Hindi known as Mandi uh, in Haryana and Punjab and the rest of North India. And what the farmer does is uh, when the farmer has harvested their crop, they uh, put it in a vehicle and they take it to the Mandi to be sold. And there they are assured for certain crops such as wheat and rice, uh, a minimum price, uh, keeping their welfare in mind. And it is called the minimum selling price at which the farmer sells this crop. Now, what is happening is uh, that the government has introduced this new law. Now, I'm not going to get into the names of these laws. They're very long. But the first law is commonly known as the APMC Bypass Act, under which the government allows private players to set up alternate marketplaces right outside the Mandi, where any private player can come and buy the farmer's crop. They do not have to pay taxes to do that. And uh, they also do not guarantee a minimum price, uh, which would be fair to farmers. Now, farmers speculate that in the beginning, the private money would give a good price. In fact, something even bigger than the minimum selling price to entice the farmers to sell to them. And as more and more farmers shift from the government mandis to the private mandis, eventually the private players would slash those prices and then there would be no way to regulate prices there and farmers would become completely dependent on them. So this is the concern about the first law, the privatization of the mandi system. Uh, The first law also talks about the removal of the Agricultural Commission agents, uh, also called Artia in uh, Punjab and Haryana. These are basically men who act as a go-between between the farmer and the big buyers uh, of produce. Now, the government is painting these Artias or middlemen as a sort of exploitative and evil and saying that they will be completely removed uh, in the new system. However, the farmers don't want the RTRs to go because uh, these RTRs, farmers say, are their spine. Uh, They uh, are very integral to the farming system, especially in Punjab and Haryana, where uh, the RTR is almost like family. In India, getting institutional credit for poor people, for farmers, is extremely bureaucratic and hard. So the RTRs extend credit to farmers. It is at higher interest rates than banks, but uh, they have a good understanding between them, where if the farmer's family has a wedding coming up or there's an illness and medical treatment has to be provided, 
uh, or new farm inputs such as fertilizers and seeds have to be bought, the RTR will go ahead and give, say, $1,000, $1,500 to the family as a loan to be repaid whenever the family is ready. Uh, and therefore, the farmers uh, rely on them and uh, they like the current system. So that's the first law that the farmers have a problem with. Uh, the second law uh, is to do with contract farming. So in India, there has been a push for contract farming for some time now. When I say contract farming, it means that a private entity can come to a farmer and ask them to grow a certain crop. So say a company which wants to make potato chips can come to a farmer and say, grow potatoes for me, and they should be a certain size, color, quality, texture, etc. And they sign a contract together and the farmer has to deliver the entire harvest of potatoes to this company. Now, in the past, there have been episodes where farmers have grown such crops for companies and the companies have uh, outrightly rejected the entire produce saying that it doesn't meet their set criteria, causing losses for the farmer. And uh, the farmer, in some instances, is also not able to sell that harvest to anybody else. So uh, in the new law regarding contract farming, there is no provision for resolving a dispute in a court of law if a farmer runs into trouble with a private entity. Uh, there is a provision where the district administration, an officer from the district administration can interfere and try to resolve that dispute, but that doesn't really fall under the purview of uh, district administration. So it's sort of a detour from the norm. And farmers want this law to be repealed as well. The third law has to do with the fear of stockpiling. So there is an Essential Commodities Act in India, which lists a number of grains and cereals and uh, lentils, etc., cetera, uh, which are termed as essential commodities. The new law, what it does is it allows private companies to hoard these goods. Now, the government says that uh, we are doing this because India has really poor storage facilities for crops. And farmers are small. They don't have that kind of money to build big storage facilities. So private companies can come, invest, and you know build these big storage houses. However, the farmers believe that once these kind of storage houses are built, then private players will hoard these uh, because now there is no cap on how much you can store with the deregulation. And once they start hoarding it, then there will be inflation and price rise. See, India's procurement system is designed in a way that all the surplus uh, uh, crop that is grown in Punjab and Haryana is bought by the government and then it is sold uh, at really low prices through the public distribution system to the poorest in India so that they can feed themselves. The public distribution system in India, you can say, is a welfare program which ensures that the poorest, the most marginalized uh, get food, uh, essentially grain and lentils at uh, really low prices to meet their nutritional needs. So once uh, such storage begins to happen uh, and there is no limit as to how much you can store, then there are also fears among uh, activists and the poorer sections that 
the public distribution system in India will be impacted adversely. So these are the three laws that the farmers want the government to repeal completely. You, you said, uh, Wandana, that you didn't want to mention the names of the laws, but I will. The first one is the Farmers Produce, Trade and Commerce or Promotion and Facilitation Act. The second, the Farmers Empowerment and Protection Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Services. And the third, the Essentials Commodity Act. They sound uh, like they're very nice acts. They sound like that they're going to make life easier for the farmers. And yet these small farmers don't think so. And this obviously is why they've driven their tractors all the way down to Delhi. Uh, in your article, and again, it's uh, the fight over agriculture in India and how Punjabis in Canada are supporting farmers. You, you mentioned, uh, Wandana, that the farmers are coming from the north. Are there farmers coming from other parts of uh, India to join in this demonstration too? Yeah, so uh, as you already know, Chris, India is uh, a huge country and uh, distances are really long here. So uh, in the north, in Delhi, basically, at the borders of the national capital, you have farmers uh, coming from Punjab, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh. Uh, These are three North Indian states. So the majority of the farmers are from these states. Then there are smaller states, which are Himalayan states, like Uttarakhand and Himachal Pradesh. So there are some farmers from these states as well at the borders of Delhi. Uh, There's a sizable uh, number of farmers from western Uttar Pradesh at the Ghazipur border site. The other farmers in other parts of India, say in Maharashtra or in Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra is in the western part of India, Tamil Nadu is in the southern part of India. So all of these farmers have been protesting locally in their own states to extend solidarity uh, to the farmers in the north. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today to Wandana Kay. She is a Delhi-based independent journalist and producer who writes on the intersection of environment, gender, youth, and indigenous communities with a focus on climate change. She's also covered India's agriculture beat for nearly two years now. Wandana's articles can be found at Deutsche Welle, Resurgence and Ecologist, The Wire, and Canada's Media Co-op, where I found her recent piece, The Fight Over Agriculture in India and How Punjabis in Canada are Supporting farmers. Uh, First of all, how did you make this connection to co-op media here in Canada? I try to write for independent publications and uh, the editor at uh, Media Co-op, yeah, basically made a call for pitches and uh, they do good work and I wanted to write for them for some time. But I also wanted to uh, pitch a story which was relevant to readers in Canada and uh, when Dave, uh, the editor there, went on Twitter asking for stories, uh, it immediately struck me that uh, on a recent trip to Punjab uh, for reporting, I had met people in a village who told me that they, uh, the farmers' movement here in India was receiving support from Canada, even funds. And so, yeah, I I thought that would be an interesting story, uh, and that's how I wrote it. Well, you mentioned in your article that there's more than half a million Punjabi speakers here, uh, mostly Sikh. Is this a mostly Sikh movement? So that's what uh, many analysts say in India. So do the critics. But yeah, a, a huge number of farmers 
who are uh, present in the farmers movement are from Punjab and Punjab has a, a big population of Sikh uh, people who are otherwise a minority uh, in the rest of India. So in some ways, yes, uh, uh, people from the Sikh community are a big part of the movement. But not the only part. And this isn't the only time that there's been marches by farmers as well. In doing some other research on this, the uh, Kassan Long March of 2018, and then again uh, in 2019, uh, about farming issues, not particularly these laws, because they hadn't been drawn up yet. But why is it that there's such a fractious relationship between uh, the central government and the farmers in India? You know, Chris, to look at this, I think you have to go back in history and uh, there's almost, you know, the roots of it uh, can be traced to the colonial times, uh, if I can say so. Punjab has a very rich history, the region, I mean, uh, of protest. So when Punjab was a region and not exactly a state in uh, colonial India, if you look at Indian history, at colonial times, when it was the British regime ruling uh, the Indian subcontinent, uh, Punjab was a region back then. And even then, uh, the British imposed certain laws uh, which would have uh, really uh, harmed uh, farming and farmers. And at that time, Punjabi farmers came out in huge numbers to fight those uh, laws and regulations. So there's a rich history of protest in the region. Uh, and even if you speak to protesters, they're really proud of that history and they believe it is uh, the legacy that they have inherited and they must uphold those values. Now, if you look at the rest of India, in the 60s, we had food shortages. Uh, there was hunger, starvation, and India relied on foreign aid, especially grain from the US to feed its population. Around the same time, uh, there was a big stress from the government uh, on, on creating new technology to be used in farms to increase uh, yields to feed the population of India, which at that time was also relatively large and today is also quite large. And uh, this sort of great focus on making agriculture, sort of expanding agriculture using technology uh, resulted in the green revolutions uh, the Green Revolution uh, basically took place in the 1960, and the states that benefited from it most were Punjab and Haryana. A lot of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, new seeds were used, uh, monoculture was promoted, and of course, in the short term, uh, there were gains, but in the long term, it has had a lot of negative impacts on the ecology of these regions. It has uh, really pushed the water table down. It has uh, contaminated the soil. And uh, there is widespread agrarian distress in India. A lot of farmers are constantly going under debt uh, and being pushed into poverty. And it's a cycle that they are stuck in. Yeah, as Wandana Shiva uh, makes clear in her work, uh, the, the horrible case of 
the Indian farmer suicides, many drinking the the same poisons that they're they're buying the from industrial giants like Monsanto, uh, where they can't uh, make the payments, they get caught up, and as you described, this endless cycle of debt and the depletion of their land at the same time. But that uh, the um, the protests have been largely peaceful. There's been some provocation from what uh, has been described as uh, goons pretending to be locals uh, fed up with the people in their region. Uh, there's been charges that the government set them, uh, set them to their work, but the people uh, uh, at these blockades, they, they are determined. Uh, January 26th was Republic day. We saw this on the news here in North America uh, the great tractor parade and the rising of the farmers' flags at the Red Fort. There was a farmer killed, and there was a lot of violence and arrests as well. What about the changing nature of this uh, protracted demonstration? Okay, so first of all, I'd like to uh, just make it clear that the farmer who died on 26th January during the tractor parade. Now, the police is saying that his tractor overturned, uh, due to which he received an injury in his head and he passed away. And then there are different accounts, none of which are verified. There is no medical report that uh, supports this, that the farmer was shot in the head. Uh, So yeah, I'd be careful with that uh, language. And then, uh, yeah, so in terms of the protests or a section of the protesters turning violent, uh, it definitely was a big deal here in India. So since the farmers' protests began began locally in Punjab uh, and continued at the borders of Delhi, one thing was very clear that this is civil disobedience. That means uh, a huge number of people are just going to peacefully occupy fuel stations, toll booths, roadsides, and uh, they are going to just sit in those places, make their speeches, shout their slogans, and absolutely no violent means would be used. So this was clear amongst the farmers' unions and the protesters from the very beginning. And on the 25th of January, a day before the Republic Day, I went to the Singhu border, which was teeming with people. The crowds were shoulder to shoulder, and uh, there was this festive mood in the air. Everybody was preparing for the tractor parade, and I spoke to several people that day, and they maintained one after the other that this was going to be a peaceful protest. Their leaders had told them so, had appealed to them to maintain peace. So when the events on 26th January, on the morning of 26th January unfolded, it was a real big shock for uh, even the journalistic community because no one had anticipated that such a thing was going to happen where farmers would clash with the police or they would, uh, you know, a section of them would head towards the Red Fort. So yeah, as I said, uh, it was completely unanticipated. And uh, of course, it left a huge mark in terms of how now people, the general public in India, looked at the farmers' protest. It changed everything. You think that the farm, that the protest lost support, uh, uh, overall support, because of that? As everywhere else in India, we also have 
this polarization going on at the moment, uh, especially now in the last, since 2014, since the Bharatiya Janata Party came to power, uh, which is viewed as the Hindu right wing in India. And uh, social media is basically big in India. Huge number of people are on social media and everything gets discussed there, every little thing. And uh, the farmers' protest is, you know, something that everybody seems to be taking a stand on, uh, on social media as well. And uh, after the protests turned violent on 26th January, uh, many people uh, on social media denounced those violent means and said that this was no way uh, for the protest to sort of go forward. Uh, this was completely unacceptable. Uh, so definitely uh, there are uh, sections of the society who believe that the farmers have lost trust because of how things unfolded. So there are two main bodies governing uh, the protests who are the face of the protesters who speak on their behalf. And those bodies have criticized the events on uh, Republic Day. They've said that they uh, intended to have a peaceful protest. There were violent elements that infiltrated the protest. There was provocation and they completely, they do not agree with violent means. And they asked farmers to uh, continue the protest in a peaceful manner, to not buck down or uh, to stay wherever they are. Uh, so the, this is how they reacted. Kaushik Basu, uh, the uh, economist, former chief economist of the World Bank, he said, and I quote him, uh, Gover- the government, uh, the Indian government, hasn't put in place any risk mitigation provisions to protect small farmers. This in these new three laws that they've drafted up. Uh, the winter, as you said, is fast coming to an end. W- where do we go next? Uh, where, what happens next from this seemingly intractable standstill? Farmers are waiting for the government to say something. And they say, as soon as the government proposes another negotiation, another talk, we'll show up for it. But until then, uh, we're going to be sitting here at the protest site. Wandana, again, thanks very much for coming on tonight and uh, good luck. And I certainly hope if people don't know what a disaster is, uh, it, without your farmers, uh, you, you're, you're in a disastrous situation to be sure. Thanks again for coming on, Wandana. You're welcome, Chris. It was a pleasure. That was the journalist Vandana Kay speaking to Chris Cook for the program Guerrilla Radio on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, operating on the unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Wasanek and Lekwungen peoples. Thanks again, Chris, for a great interview. It was recorded in February of 2021. That's the end of our coverage of India in the wake of the Indian strike and the pandemic. On next week's show, with tomorrow marking the 73rd anniversary of Nakba and the resurgence in Israel, Gaza, of the worst hostilities in seven years, we'll be focusing our attention on the plight of the people on the ground and looking at reasons this is happening now and what, if anything, Canadians can do to help ease the situation. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show appears on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and can be streamed or downloaded at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Thanks again for listening.